Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta and the volume editors of each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, Dr. Raj back again. Whether you're seeing me on our wonderful videos on beyondthepearls.net or you're listening to me on my amazing podcast, uh, we just finished talking about hyponatremia. We talked about ecstasy. We talked about genetics, about hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, and we talked about self-glucose monitoring. So where are we going to go from here? It's time for some sepsis. 75-year-old man presented to the emergency department with fevers and productive cough, some dyspnea, feeling faint. He has the following uh, vitals. The blood pressure is 105 over 50. The MAP is 68. And this is after receiving one and a half liters of IV fluids. Patients on no vasopressors. His baseline blood pressure is 130 over 80, heart rate of 110, respiratory rate of 24. The oxygen saturation is 92% breathing 50% oxygen by a face mask. So he's hypoxic. He is febrile at 38.5. He has altered mental status. His Glasgow coma scale of 14. His urine output by an indwelling bladder catheter is 25 mLs per hour. That's almost 600 mLs per day. That's, you know, folks, that's not a lot. A little bit over half a liter a day is not a lot. What's the normal amount of urine output per day? Just yell it out. For me and you, it's around two liters of urine I make per day. That's a little too personal. But um, his WVC count is 15,000, lactate of uh, 2.7. Uh, serum creatinine is 1.3, platelets of 200, bilirubin is 1.0. His dissolved oxygen is P, little AO2 is 70 while breathing 50% oxygen. Yeah, he's hypoxic. They do a chest X-ray that reveals a lobar consolidation. Voila, pneumonia. So it sounds like this is pneumonia and sepsis. You know what I mean? How would you classify his condition according to the international consensus definitions of sepsis using the Sears criteria? Now, once again, folks, Sears is not a department store. It stands for systemic inflammatory response syndrome. So that's one criteria. And they also want to know how would you classify it according to the new sepsis criteria known as the sepsis three criteria, which is uh, published in 2016. So what are they asking? How do you classify sepsis using the Sears criteria versus the sepsis three criteria? So choice A is he is defined as sepsis, the word defined by the Sears criteria and sepsis by the new criteria called the S3 criteria, all right? Choice B, does the patient have severe sepsis based on the Sears criteria and just plain old sepsis by the S3 criteria? C, is it severe sepsis by the Sears criteria or is this septic shock by the new S3 criteria? D, is this septic shock by the Sears criteria and septic shock by the new S3 criteria, or <laughs> choice E, this question is way too long and what the hell did Dr. Raj just say? Don't pick that because you're going to hurt my feelings. <laughs> when we talk about sepsis, there are different criteria, and that's why I wanted to put this question here because it is confusing. 
And, you know, I'm going to tell you what the answer is, but we're going to go and break it down. So when we talk about the new criteria, it, it doesn't use the word severe sepsis anymore. When we talk about the new criteria, we don't use the word sears anymore. We just talk about sepsis or is it going to be septic shock? So there's only going to be two choices over here. So when I look at this patient over here, I mean, this patient has target organ damage. You know, by using the old criteria, this patient definitely has severe sepsis. So I would say the choices B and C are great choices because it is severe sepsis. And you know what? This patient isn't really in septic shock. How do I know that? Is because the mean arterial pressure is above 65 just by giving fluids. So I don't call this septic shock. You know what really jumps out at me is choice B, the old Sears criteria. This is severe sepsis. But if I were to use the newer criteria, this is just plain old boring sepsis. So answer is B. So let me explain what I'm talking about with this slide over here. So how do we define sepsis and septic shock? And using the old criteria called Sears and the new criteria. So when we talk about sepsis in general, how do I think about it? It's having a source of infection and getting organ injury. Whether that infection is going to be a pneumonia, whether you're going to be bacteremic, where your blood cultures are growing nasty, nasty bugs, or you have a urinary tract infection. These are just some examples. And what happens, you get target organ injury. If it's the lungs, that pneumonia could turn into what? Acute respiratory distress syndrome. If you have bacteremia, you're, all of a sudden your blood pressure could drop. And, have, and I always think about the, the letters MAP, mean arterial pressure, less than 65. Oh boy, this can't be a good thing. Or if you have a urinary tract infection, maybe that leads to uh, kidney problems. That's going to be the target organ right there. So sepsis, think about infection and organ injury. So the definition of sepsis, the criteria of sepsis is always, always, always changing. You know, and it's really hard to come to a consensus. And one of the first types of criteria we had out there was called the SEERS criteria. SEERS stands for Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. So when we talked about SEERS, it starts off with you had an infection or a presumed infection. Remember, you don't always have to grow the culture. It's a presumed infection. And SEERS is based upon having two of the four criteria. Now, I'll tell you right off the bat. The reason why we don't use the Sears criteria anymore is because it's so sensitive that everyone would have Sears. So what was the criteria? The four criteria was number one, temperature. You could be hyper or hypothermic. Number two was heart rate. You could definitely be tachycardic, meaning your heart rate would be definitely above 90, if not 100. You could be tachypnic, meaning your respiratory rate could be greater than 20. And they had the option where if you can't really judge the respiratory rate, you could do an arterial blood gas. And because you're hyperventilating, the PCO2 is going to be low, less than 30. And then the other two are going to be having a white blood cell count, which means you had to do a venous blood draw. And your white blood cell count were probably very, very elevated, or you could be very, very low. And then when we talked about these, the reason why it was so sensitive is because Trust me right now, I don't have sepsis. I feel good. I'm doing this lecture. But let's say I were to run all the way downstairs. I'm on the third floor and run back up. I got to tell you, my heart rate would be what? Beating. It'll be tachycardic. And I'll be kind of out of breath. I haven't really been working out a lot. been eating those Sour Patch Kids quite a bit (laughs) during nighttime. So, you know, I'll be breathing heavily. So based upon having a fast heart rate and breathing fast, I would have what? Sears, systemic inflammatory response syndrome. 
So that's why it's too sensitive. And then other parts of it, if you really wanted to think about making the serious criteria, then you kind of need a little blood work to get that WBC count. You may want to stick me in the artery for an ABG, maybe. So it required a lot. So it just didn't seem to pan out. It's too sensitive. So we don't use a serious criteria anymore. So how do we define seps in the olden days? It was some presumed source of infection. You met the serious criteria, which two out of the four criteria. Then we called it what? Sepsis. And then how do you get severe sepsis in the olden days is where you had target organ damage. And what organ can be involved? Well, any organ. If it's the brain, you can have mental status changes. If it's the lungs, you have difficulty breathing and being hypoxic. If it's the kidneys, you're not making urine. So if you had sepsis plus organ failure, we call that severe sepsis. The reason why we don't use the word severe sepsis anymore is because when you say the word severe sepsis, it kind of implies that there's good sepsis. (laughs) There's no such thing as good sepsis. So we don't use the word severe sepsis anymore. Gone. Sears. Gone. We just like sepsis. But we still use septic shock. And when we talk about septic shock, that's going to be when you have a mean arterial pressure less than 65 after you fully resuscitated with fluids and probably going to be on vasopressors. But serious criteria we're talking about is not used anymore. Now let's go back to the question. So when we were using the, uh, what is the serious criteria, we said that definitely this patient meets Sears. I mean, in many different ways, he's tachypnic, he's tachycardic, his WBC count is elevated, and he had target organ problems. Remember, he's using oxygen, his mental status. So he definitely has severe sepsis. That's why B and C were correct. So what about the sepsis three criteria? So now let's talk about that. So why do we make a big deal about all these criteria? I love this picture. Check out beyondthepearls.net. So there are different criteria out there. So I'm going to give it criteria one, set one, set two, set three. And why do we care about this criteria? Because is there a specific criteria out there that helps us reduce what? Mortality. So if there's a criteria where we can identify sepsis correctly, identify it in a timely fashion, and it reduces mortality, I'm game on. So we put all the different criteria out there, including the Sears criteria, the new criteria, and we say some overestimate mortality, which is not good, some underestimate it, which is not good, but some criteria do it just right. And that's what we want is find the criteria that's just right. And right now, it seems like it's going to be the sepsis three criteria. So what is going to be the definition? Honestly, definition and criteria are two different things. When we talk about the definition, I literally mean if you were to open Webster's Dictionary and read a definition of a a word, that's the definition. It is defined now as sepsis is a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. That is the definition of sepsis. And I think it describes what's going on really well. It's life-threatening, there's organ dysfunction, and your immune response is just dysregulated. And when we talk about criteria, that's not definition. What is the new criteria? Since we're not using the Sears criteria, we're using what's called the SOFA score. The SOFA score. So of course, SOFA stands uh, for a little acronym where S stands for sepsis related, O for organ, F for failure, A for assessment, the sepsis organ failure assessment score. So how do you define sepsis? Well, there's got to be some kind of infection. And you need to have a change in the SOFA score greater than two. So what organs are we looking at? Well, in my wonderful, wonderful slide, there are six organs over here. There's the lungs, 
we look at the, the P to F ratio. P stands for P little AO2, the partial pressure of arterial oxygen divided by the FiO2. So that's the same criteria we use to define ARDS. And if that PAF ratio is low, being probably less than 200, definitely we think about ARDS. Glasgow Coma Scale. So of course, mental status changes, that's going to be a low value. Are they hypotensive? We use the mean arterial pressure being low, less than 65. Liver dysfunction, we use the bilirubin being elevated. For the bone marrow, we think about having low platelets. And for those of you at the end of this lecture I'm doing here, we're going to have an awesome talk about thrombocytopenia. And for the kidneys, we say, hey, is the serum creatinine going up or are they not making urine called oliguria? So if your SOFA score just changes more than two, plus you have an assumed source of infection, boom, we call that what? Sepsis. So look at my bottom line. If your SOFA score is two, just starting off at two or more, that increases your mortality by 10%. That's a lot. That means one in 10 people will die you know, who have sepsis just based on having a SOFA score greater than two. So when we talk about septic shock, because the new criteria only has two choices, sepsis or septic shock, how do we find septic shock? Well, you got to have sepsis first and your mean arterial pressure has to be less than 65 millimeters of mercury, and you have to have an elevated lactic acid. And when we say your mean arterial pressure, we're going to give fluids, fluids, fluids first. You're not responding to fluids. And then we're going to probably give a, what we call vasopressor. And we'll talk about that shortly to maintain the MAP greater than 65. So septic shock is sepsis plus a mean arterial pressure less than 65, despite IV fluids or being on pressors and a lactic acid level that's going to be elevated. And there are different units of the lactic acid. So in my slide, the units are milligrams per deciliter, which is lactic acid greater than 18. But many people use a different uh, units and a lactic acid greater than two, um, at least in my hospital, is considered a positive lactic acid. So when we go back to the question over here, look at this, that we can't call this septic shock because Patient's mean arterial pressure is what? 68, and it worked just giving 1.5 liters of fluid. And there's no vasopressors. And so based upon that, yeah, you, you wouldn't say this patient has septic shock. So the only one that makes sense here is going to be what? This patient has sepsis. So B is definitely going to be the right answer. So let me give you another question. Something just jumped to mind. What about, there's this new criteria for sepsis and septic shock based on the sequential organ failure assessment, the SOFA score. And we just finished talking about that. So I purposely put this question here. But you know what, everyone? There's something called a quick SOFA, a Q-SOFA. And this score is used as a screening tool for sepsis in adult patients in the outpatient clinic in the emergency department or the ward setting. So what am I saying? There's a quick SOFA, Q-SOFA, that is a screening tool, not used in the ICU, but to see if patient is at risk for sepsis or has sepsis to put them into the medical ICU. So my question is, what are the three components of the Q-SOFA? Is it A, respiratory rate greater than 22, mental status changes, and the systolic pressure less than 100? Is it B, hypo or hyperthermia? Uh, meaning a temperature less than 35 degrees Celsius or greater than 38 degrees Celsius, heart rate greater than 100 with a leukocytosis or leukopenia? Is it C, hypo or hyperthermia, meaning once again, temperature less than 35 degrees Celsius or greater than 38 degrees Celsius with a heart rate greater than 100 
in a serum lactic acid that's greater than two millimoles per liter or 18 milligrams per deciliter? Is it D, respiratory rate greater than 22, heart rate greater than 100, serum lactic acid greater than 18 or greater than two millimoles per liter? Or choice E, respiratory rate greater than 22, heart rate greater than 100, or leukocytosis or leukopenia. So it really comes down to, I hate this word, and I'm going to apologize. Did you memorize? Did you memorize the, the, what the Q-SOFA score is? And there are three criteria to the Q-SOFA. And if I didn't know what they were, I would pick things that are easily measurable, things that you can get right on the spot. So anytime you see leukocytosis or lactic acid, you got to do what? A blood work. So it really wouldn't be a, a quick thing to do. You got to wait for the blood work to come back. So taking my test-taking skills, it's not going to be B because you got to do blood work for leukocytosis. It's not going to be C or D or E because once again, lactic acid, you probably need arterial blood gas or blood work. So just by default, the answer would be counting the respiratory rate. You don't need anything to do that. Mental status changes is a quick subjective. And blood pressure, that's just your vital signs. So the answer is going to be what? A. And that is the criteria. I put it right here. Respiratory rate greater than 22, altered mental status, systolic blood pressure less than 100. And that's what we call a quick SOFA score. So I'm in the mood. I'm in this like ICU mood. A 58-year-old man is evaluated in the hospital for fever, hypotension, and altered mental status. He was hospitalized two days ago for an infected arm wound and was treated with intravenous pepercillin and tazobactam, otherwise known as brand name Zosin and vancomycin. This morning, he developed a new pain in the middle of his back and difficulty urinating. This can't be good. His medical history is significant for type 2 diabetes. He's treated with metformin. Hopefully, they stopped that medication on admission <laughs> on exam. He is febrile at 102.4. His blood pressure is low at 83 over 48. Heart rate of 110, respiratory rate of 21, and an O2 set of 98% breathing two liters nasal cannula. He is somewhat somnolent, but he's arousable and he's oriented when he's awake. There is an erythema around the wound of his right upper arm with no drainage or tenderness. There is tenderness when they percuss the middle of his back and palpate the bladder. His labs, he has a leukocytosis at 22,000. His plasma glucose is 160. And his chest X-ray is unremarkable. All right, here's the question, everyone. Are you ready? Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in the management of this patient? So choice A, hey, are we going to give this guy some IV fluids? Choice B, should we give him some insulin? Choice C, time to go to the MRI to figure out why he's having back pain. Choice D, hey, let's go to surgery and explore that wound right here. Choice E, nah, maybe not an MRI just yet. Let's go for that CT contrast of the spine. So I love this question. Which ones can you rule out right off the bat? We don't need to have tight glucose control when your plasma glucose is 160 in the setting of sepsis at this time. So starting insulin at this point, based on what I know, would not be the next best test. Is this a good time when your blood pressure is low to, to shove you in an MRI to get claustrophobic for a few hours? No, that, that sounds kind of mean. So I'm not going to do an MRI of the spine. Well, what about just getting a CT? Well, I think there are other issues that need to be addressed first beyond imaging the spine. So I'm going to say C and E are off the list. Now, of course, 
Is there a role for getting surgery involved? You know, just at least evaluate first. I mean, this choice says bring them right to good surgical uh, explanation. What are they worried about here? Of course, right upper arm. Is it necrotizing fasciitis? Is it gangrenous myositis? Are they having some kind of strep toxic shock syndrome? These are all great things we should think about in critical care. And I don't think it's wrong to think about these things, but to go straight to surgery, I don't think that's going to be the next best step. You know, what really jumps out at me here is that this patient's blood pressure is what? 80 over 40. This patient needs what? IV fluids. And these are the questions they're going to ask you on the board exams. Hey, we got to just think of simple things first, address the things that we worry about patient being hypotensive and tachycardic. Let's get some fluid. The answer is going to be what? A. So when we think about fluid management, if you guys want me to give you some number crunching, usually for resuscitation, we think about 30 mLs per kilogram of body weight. We want to do that right away, give them some fluids. And let me actually give you one of my favorite slides next to kind of talk about choice A a little bit even more, which is going to be right here. People always ask, well, what fluids do you want to give Dr. Raj? So when I think about fluids, um, it starts off with, are you going to give a crystalloid or a colloid? You know, colloids are things like albumin, and it's really not wrong to give things like albumin, but by far the standard of care, what most people give is crystalloid. And maybe a lot of what's driving that is going to be priced. No, albumin is not cheap, but most of us use albumin when, when we think about cirrhosis, when you think about nephrotic syndrome, you know? Uh, so it's not wrong to give a colloid, but crystalloids is definitely the way to go. When we think about crystalloids, you know, a big thing right now is, are you going to give a balanced uh, electrolyte solution, a balanced solution, or are you going to give, and I hate this word, normal saline? You know, I don't like it because it's far from normal. So when we talk about balanced electrolytes, you always have to ask yourself, what's our serum sodium? And our serum sodium is somewhere between, you know, 135 and 145. You know, 140 is the sweet spot. So when you give normal saline, I mean, that has 154 milliequivalents of sodium. That's far from what? Normal. And the big thing is sodium is a positive charge. So it's going to get balanced by what? Chloride. So you're giving 154 milliequivalents of what? Chloride. And I got to tell you, when you give that much chloride, you know who hates chloride in the body? Bicarb, because they have what? The same charge. So if you start giving all that chloride, you're going to start kicking out the bicarb. They're going to develop a what? Hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. And all these bad things happen when you give that much chloride, including kidney problems. So when we talk about more of a balanced electrolyte, we're thinking about giving fluids that have the electrolyte composition very similar to our fluids in the body. So the classic example is lactated ringers that has 130 uh, milliequivalents of sodium. There are also other brand names that maybe medicine doctors don't use as much as surgical doctors, but they're out there. Things like plasmalite or normorsol, and they will have 140 milliequivalents of sodium also. And I put here a nice little chart that shows all the other electrolytes that could be involved when you talked about certain types of fluids. For example, lactated ringers has some potassium, has some calcium, there's no magnesium, has a chloride load of only 109, and has an osmolarity of 208. So the answer to the question is, of course, give fluids. And if they give you a choice, you definitely want to use a balanced electrolyte fluid so you won't get that high sodium load and high chloride load that you get with normal saline. 
So after you give them fluid resuscitation, well, you may have to use pressors. And of course, what did I put a picture up here? We'd like to put an arterial line because we like to target that mean arterial pressure. If they're on the ventilator and going to get require many arterial blood gas for ventilator management, it will be less painful and easy for the patient. So that's why I put an arterial line over here and showing that nice uh, A-line waveform. So if they don't respond to fluids, then we think about pressors. And when we think about pressors, I put them into three categories. What are those three categories? catecholamines, vasopressin analogs, and something you may not be familiar with, angiotensin II. So when we think about vasopressors, what are the classic catecholamines out there? Norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine, and phenyl. And for sepsis, which is what we're talking about here, because of course, what is the most common type of shock? It's distributive shock secondary to sepsis. That's like 60 to 65% of all shock. What is always going to be the initial vasopressor of choice is norepinephrine, otherwise known as the brand name Levofed. And most of us, you know, according to many different guidelines, surviving sepsis, sepsis three, that, you know, once we start increasing the dose of norepinephrine, most of us will choose to use uh, vasopressin, which is an analog of antidiuretic hormone. And when we talk about vasopressin, there are two main receptors in the body, V1 and V2. V1 is in our arterioles, and when you activate them, it vasoconstricts. V2 is going to be where? In the kidney. So we're talking about the V1 receptor, and it's a very potent vasoconstrictor. So if you say sepsis, most likely they're going to be on norepinephrine first, vasopressin second. And then, you know, when we talk about these angiotensin II, why do I want to bring it up? Because if you need a third presser, Many people reach for epinephrine. Many people reach for phenylephrine. And my question is, how many catecholamine receptors do you have? So when you give that many catecholamines, you're going to be proarrhythmic. You're going to really clamp down. You could get gut ischemia. So there is a downside to it. So angiotensin II is actually, it's not a new hormone. It's been in our body for quite some time, but you can give pooled angiotensin II. And remember, angiotensin II is a very potent one, vasoconstrictor. And on top of that, angiotensin II goes on to activate aldosterone, which works in the kidney. What does aldosterone make you do? It makes you retain the sodium. And where sodium goes, who follows? Water. Do you want that when you're hypotensive and septic shock? Yes, it's going to be a good thing. There are also newer data out there that shows that Angiotensin II may be very beneficial for those who have renal failure secondary to the sepsis. Renal failure secondary to the sepsis itself. And how do I approach septic shock? Well, I love this diagram here on the left that, you know, to bring up that mean arterial pressure above 65, I want to tack it in different ways. You know, we use the catecholamines. We talked about norepinephrine. We use vasopressin. And then instead of just giving more and more and more catecholamines, that's where angiotensin II may uh, have a role. And let me be very clear, angiotensin II is only FDA approved for septic shock. And the classic trial that you could read about is called the ACTOS-3 trial that got them the FDA approval. So I felt this was an important thing. People always ask me about fluids and pressors. So I hope you found this very, very uh, informative and, of course, high yield for the boards. But you know what? I'm going on. I'm doing one more over here.
We have a 35-year-old man with a history of ongoing alcohol use in the ICU. He is treated for severe pancreatitis and subsequent ARDS. Now, let me stop right there. Pancreatitis, high yield for the boards. ARDS, I mean, I wish I could spend all the time here. ARDS is always high yield for the board exams. Hey, beyondthepearls.net, go do pulmonary, and I talk my butt off about ARDS. Regardless, patients intubated and sedated on mechanical ventilation and on this volume assist control mode with a tidal volume of 6 mLs per kilogram of body weight. This is that low tidal volume you want when you have ARDS, that lung protective strategy. Other medical problems include asthma since uh, childhood, for which he uses an inhaled corticosteroid and long-acting beta agonist. Bronchodilator therapy has been continued during this hospitalization. On day six of admission, he develops worsening hypotension, decreased urine output, worsening hypoxia. And on exam, his blood pressure is low at 80 over 60. His heart rate is up at 120. Lung exam reveals crackles and scattered wheezes. And his abdomen is firm with decreased bowel sounds. And the airway pressures on the mechanical ventilator have changed since we rounded in the morning. So... What are those changes? And if you are watching me, you'll look at uh, these findings called the peak and plateau pressures. So when we talk about peak and plateau pressures, peak pressures are mentioned and you can see it on the mechanical ventilator, but you have to measure a plateau pressure. And remember, a plateau pressure is an end inspiratory pause. So at the end of inspiration, think of a valve closing. When someone's on the vent, it closes and it measures compliance. So in the morning, the peak pressure was 35, the plateau pressure was 30, but in the evening, later in the day, the peak pressure was 48, it shot up, and the plateau pressure is also higher, it's 42. So peak and plateau both increased, they both increased. So they do a repeat chest x-ray, it's the same as before, they do a bedside ultrasound revealing sliding lung bilaterally. And um, the most likely cause of this patient's finding, meaning the elevated peak and plateau pressures, are secondary to what? And there are five choices. Is this going to be bronchospasm? Is this going to be a mucus plug? Is this going to be C, abdominal compartment syndrome? Is this going to be D, a pneumothorax? Or you know what? Is this patient not really sedated and just biting down on that endotracheal tube going through the mouth? So why do I love this question so much is because which one, even if you don't know peak and plateau pressures, which one can you rule out right off the bat? Pneumothorax. Why? Is because in the vignette, it says a bedside ultrasound reveals sliding lung. So for those who don't know about sliding lung, this is an ultrasound finding that says, hey, there's not a pneumothorax. And why did I put this here? It's because I just made a 3 hour plus high yield ultrasound video to give you the pearls you need for the boards. But I'm giving one away right now. Having a positive lung sliding, seeing sliding lung rules out pneumothorax. But now you're down to still four other choices. So what could it be? It all comes down to understanding what does it mean if you have a high peak and high plateau. So I always say, when do I think about these words? I walk in the room, the vent is making all these noises. I'm like, oh my God, ventilator, please be quiet. Everyone's panicking, but not you. And of course, the patient's unstable. 
disconnect from the ventilator, bag the patient on 100%, and then figure out what's going on. But if you have some time, if there's a high peak pressure, what should you do next? Measure plateau. That's an end inspiratory pause. And there are two patterns. If you have a high peak pressure, meaning that it requires a lot of pressure to get the volume into the patient, that breath into the patient, but you have a normal plateau, high peak normal plateau, well, that's going to be more a resistance problem. Resistance getting the airflow through the tube, down into the lungs, something that's causing spasm, biting down. But if you have a high peak and high plateau, it's more of a compliance problem in the lung. So what do we have here? High peak and high plateau. This is a compliance problem. So if you're spasming in the airway, that's what? It's going to be a resistance problem. So that can't be A because I'm seeing high peak and high plateau. Mucus plugging, that means there's mucus in the airway. That can't be the answer because we have a high peak and a high plateau. Could this be biting on the tube? No, that's a resistance problem. You have a what? High peak and high plateau. So the only ones it could be are C and D. They both will give you high peak and high plateau, but they had to give you the ultrasound findings for you to rule out a what? Pneumothorax. So the answer is going to be C, but many of you thought about this because of what? Pancreatitis. And some people who have a severe pancreatitis, like a necrotizing pancreatitis, you definitely can get an abdominal compartment syndrome. And how does that present? Decreased urine output. And all of a sudden, you can't breathe because, you know, the abdomen is so distended and painful that it's a compliance problem in the lung. High peak, high plateau. The answer is going to be what? C. So this is going to be the classic picture you see that at the end of a maximum inspiration, it's going to be the peak pressure. And then when you do a plateau pressure and inspiratory pause, you measure it right here. And then when you release the breath, it goes all the way down. And if you have a little peep left in the lung, positive and expiratory pressure, it will stop right here. So we did a lot of ICU uh, uh, care here. This is the classic chart I want for everyone to see. What is my differential for a high peak and a normal plateau pressure, mucus plugging, bronchospasm, biting the ET tube. ET tube is blocked with something. If you have a high peak and a high plateau, a compliance problem, ARDS, pulmonary edema, pneumothorax, ET tube is into one of the main stem bronchuses, meaning that you put the ET tube in the right main stem or the left main stem, or abdominal compartment syndrome, which you see with what? Very bad necrotizing pancreatitis. And with that being said, Wow, I'm gonna give a quick break because I think that's a great ICU block right there. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.